Book Six, Chapter Thirty Seven of Robert Earlsmere by Mary Augusta Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book Six, Chapter Thirty Seven. Ten days after Langham's return to Oxford, Ellesmere received a characteristic letter from him, asking whether their friendship was to be considered as still existing or at an end. The calm and even proud melancholy of the letter showed a considerable subsidence of that state of half-frenzied irritation and discomfort in which Ellesmere had last seen him. The writer, indeed, was clearly settling down into another period of pessimistic quietism, such as that which had followed upon his first young efforts at self-assertion years before. But this second period bore the marks of an even profounder depression of all the vital forces than the first, and as Ellesmere, with a deep sigh, half angry, half relenting, put down the letter, he felt the conviction that no fresh influence from outside would ever again be allowed to penetrate the solitude of Langham's life. In comparison with the man who had just addressed him, the tutor of his undergraduate recollections was a vigorous and sociable human being. The relenting grew upon him, and he wrote a sensible, affectionate letter in return. Whatever had been his natural feelings of resentment, he said, he could not realise, now that the crisis was past, that he cared less about his old friend. "'As far as we two are concerned, let us forget it all. I could hardly say this, you would easily imagine, if I thought that you had done serious or irreparable harm. But both my wife and I agree now in thinking that by a pure accident, as it were, and to her own surprise, Rose has escaped either. It will be some time, no doubt, before she will admit it. A girl is not so easily disloyal to her past.' but to us it is tolerably clear. At any rate, I send you our opinion for what it is worth, believing that it will and must be welcome to you. Rose, however, was not so long in admitting it. One marked result of that new vulnerableness of soul produced in her by the shock of that February morning was a great softening towards Catherine. Whatever might have been Catherine's intense relief when Robert returned from his abortive mission, she never afterwards let a disparaging word towards Langham escape her lips to Rose. She was tenderness and sympathy itself, and Rose, in her curious reaction against her old self, and against the noisy world of flattery and excitement in which she had been living, turned to Catherine as she had never done since she was a tiny child. She would spend hours in a corner of the Bedford Square drawing-room, pretending to read, or play with little Mary, in reality recovering like some bruised and trodden plant under the healing influence of thought and silence. One day, when they were alone in the firelight, she startled Catherine by saying, with one of her old, odd smiles, "'Do you know, Cathy, how I always see myself nowadays? It is a sort of hallucination. I see a girl at the foot of a precipice. She's had a fall, and she's sitting up, feeling all her limbs. And to her great astonishment, there is no bone broken.' And she held herself back from Catherine's knee, lest her sister should attempt to caress her, her eyes bright and calm. Nor would she allow an answer, drowning all that Catherine might have said in a sudden rush after the child who was wandering round them in search of a playfellow. In truth, Rose Leyburn's girlish passion for Edward Langham had been a kind of accident unrelated to the main forces of character. He had crossed her path in a moment of discontent, of aimless revolt and longing, when she was but fresh emerged from the cramping conditions of her childhood and trembling on the brink of new and unknown activities. His intellectual prestige, his melancholy, his personal beauty, 
his very strangenesses and weaknesses had made a deep impression on the girl's immature romantic sense. His resistance had increased the charm, and the interval of angry resentful separation had done nothing to weaken it. As to the months in London, there had been one long duel between herself and him, a duel which had all the fascination of difficulty and uncertainty, but in which pride and caprice had dealt and sustained a large proportion of the blows. Then, after a moment of intoxicating victory, Langham's endangered habits and threatened individuality had asserted themselves once for all. And from the whole long struggle, passion, exultation, and crushing defeat, it often seemed to her that she gained neither joy nor irreparable grief, but a new birth of character, a soul. It may easily be imagined that Hugh Flaxman felt a peculiarly keen interest in Langham's disappearance. On the afternoon of the Searle House rehearsal, he had awaited Rose's coming in a state of extraordinary irritation. He expected a blushing fiancée in a fool's paradise, asking by manner, if not by word, for his congratulations, and taking a decent feminine pleasure perhaps in the pang she might suspect in him. And he had already taken his pleasure in the planning of some double-edged congratulations. Then, up the steps of the concert platform, there came a pale, tired girl, who seemed specially to avoid his look, who found a quiet corner, and said hardly a word to anybody till her turn came to play. His revulsion of feeling was complete. After her peace he made his way up to her, and was her watchful, unobtrusive guardian for the rest of the afternoon. He walked home after he had put her into her cab in a whirl of impatient conjecture. As compared to last night, she looks this afternoon as if she'd had an illness. What on earth has that philandering ass been about? If he did not propose to her last night, he ought to be shot. And if he did, our fortiori, for clearly she is miserable. But what a brave child! How she played her part! I wonder whether she thinks I saw nothing like all the rest. Poor little cold hand! Next day, in the street, he met Ellesmere, turned and walked with him, and by dint of leading the conversation a little, discovered that Langham had left London. Gone! But not without a crisis, that was evident. During the dinner preparations for the Searle House concert, and during the meetings which it entailed, now at the Varleys, now at the house of some other connection of his, for the concert was the work of his friends, and given in the town-house of his decrepit great-uncle Lord Daniel, he had many opportunities of observing Rose and he felt a soft, indefinable change in her, which kept him in a perpetual answering vibration of sympathy and curiosity. She seemed to him for the moment to have lost her passionate relish for living, that relish which had always been so marked with her. Her bubble of social pleasure was pricked. She did everything she had to do, and did it admirably. But all through she was to his fancy absent and distrait pursuing through the tumult of which he was often the central figure some inner meditations of which neither he nor any one else knew anything. Some eclipse had passed over the girl's light, self-satisfied temper. Some searching thrill of experience had gone through the whole nature. She had suffered, and she was quietly fighting down her suffering without a word to anybody. Flaxman's guesses as to what had happened came often very near the truth, and the mixture of indignation and relief with which he received his own conjectures amused himself. "'To think,' he said to himself once with a long breath, "'that that creature was never at a public school, will go to his death without any one of the kickings due to him.' 
then his very next impulse, perhaps, would be an impulse of gratitude towards the same creature, towards the man who had released a prize he'd had the tardy sense to see was not meant for him. Free again, to be loved, to be won. There was the fact of facts, after all. His own future policy, however, gave him much anxious thought. Clearly, at present, the one thing to be done was to keep his own ambitions carefully out of sight. He had the skill to see that she was in a state of reaction, of moral and mental fatigue. What she mutely seemed to ask of her friends was not to be made to feel. He took his cue accordingly. He talked to his sister. He kept Lady Charlotte in order. After all her eager expectation on Hugh's behalf, Lady Helen had been dumbfounded by the sudden emergence of Langham at Lady Charlotte's party for their common discomfiture. Who was the man? Why, what did it all mean? He had the most provoking way of giving you half his confidence. To tell you he was seriously in love, and to omit to add the trifling item that the girl in question was probably on the point of engaging herself to somebody else. Lady Helen made believe to be angry, and it was not till she had reduced Hugh to a whimsical penitence and a full confession of all he knew, or suspected, that she consented, with as much loftiness as the physique of an elf allowed her, to be his good friend again, and to play those cards of him which at the moment he could not play for himself. So in the cheeriest, daintiest way, Rose was made much of by both brother and sister. Lady Helen chatted of gowns and music and people, whisked Rose and Agnes off to this party and that, brought fruit and flowers to Mrs. Laban, made pretty deferential love to Catherine, and generally, to Mrs. Pearson's disgust, became the girl's chief chaperone in a fast-filling London. Meanwhile, Mr. Flaxman was always there to befriend or amuse his sister's protégés, always there, but never in the way. He was bantering, sympathetic, critical, laudatory, what you will. But all the time he reserved a delicate distance between himself and Rose, a bright nonchalance and impersonality of tone towards her which made his companionship a perpetual tonic. And between them he and Helen coerced Lady Charlotte. A few inconvenient inquiries after Rose's health, a few unexplained stares and humps and grunts, a few irrelevant disquisitions on her nephew's merits of head and heart, were all she was able to allow herself. And yet she was inwardly seething with a mass of sentiments to which it would have been pleasant to give expression. Anger with Rose for having been so blind and so presumptuous as to prefer someone else to Hugh. Anger with Hugh for his persistent disregard of her advice and the Duke's feelings. And a burning desire to know the precise why and wherefore of Langham's disappearance. She was too lofty to become Rose's aunt without a struggle, but she was not too lofty to feel the hungriest interest in her love affairs. But, as we have said, the person who for the time profited most by Rose's shaken mood was Catherine. The girl coming over, restless under her own smart, would fall to watch the trial of the woman and the wife, and would often perforce forget herself and her smaller woes in the pity of it. She stayed in Bedford Square once for a week, and then for the first time she realised the profound change which had passed over the Ellesmere's life. As much tenderness between husband and wife as ever, perhaps more expression of it even than before, as though from an instinctive craving to hide the separateness below from each other and from the world. But Robert went his way, Catherine hers. Their spheres of work lay far apart, their interests were diverging fast, and though Robert, at any rate, was perpetually resisting, 
All sorts of fresh, invading silences were always coming in to limit talk, and increase the number of sore points which each avoided. Robert was hard at work in the East End under Murray Edwards's auspices. He was already known to certain circles as a seceder from the Church, who was likely to become both powerful and popular. Two articles of his in the 19th century, on disputed points of biblical criticism, had distinctly made their mark, and several of the veterans of philosophical debate had already taken friendly and flattering notice of the new writer. Meanwhile, Catherine was teaching in Mr. Clarendon's Sunday school and attending his prayer meetings. The more expansive Robert's energies became, the more she suffered, and the more the small daily opportunities for friction multiplied. Soon she could hardly bear to hear him talk about his work, and she never opened the number of the nineteenth century which contained his papers, nor had he the heart to ask her to read them. Murray Edwards had received Ellesmere on his first appearance in R., with a cordiality and a helpfulness of the most self-effacing kind. Robert had begun with assuring his new friend that he saw no chance, at any rate for the present, of his formally joining the Unitarians. I have not the heart to pledge myself again just yet, and I own I look rather for a combination from many sides than for the development of any now existing sect. But supposing, he added, smiling, supposing I do in time set up a congregation and a service of my own, is there really room for you and me? Should I not be infringing on a work I respect a great deal too much for anything of the sort? Edwards laughed the notion to scorn. The parish as a whole contained twenty thousand persons. The existing churches, which, with the exception of St. Wilfrid's, were miserably attended, provided accommodation at the outset for three thousand. His own chapel held four hundred, and was about half full. "'You know I may drop our lives here,' he said, his pleasant friendliness darkened for a moment by the look of melancholy which London work seems to develop even in the most buoyant of men. "'And only a few hundred persons at the most be ever the wiser.' Begin with us, then make your own circle. And he forthwith carried off his visitor to the point from which, as it seemed to him, Ellesmer's work might start, viz. a lecture-room half a mile from his own chapel, where two helpers of his had just established an independent venture. Murray Edwards had at the time an interesting and miscellaneous staff of lay curates. He asked no questions as to religious opinions, but in general the men who volunteered under him, civil servants, a young doctor, a briefless barrister or two, were men who had drifted from received beliefs, and found a pleasure and freedom in working for and with him they could hardly have found elsewhere. The two who had planted their outpost in what seemed to them a particularly promising corner of the district were men of whom Edwards knew personally little. "'I've really not much concern with what they do,' he explained to Ellesmere, "'except that they get a small share of our funds. But I know they want help, and if they will take you in, I think you will make something of it.' After a tramp through the muddy winter streets, they came upon a new block of warehouses, in the lower windows of which St. Bill's announced a night school for boys and men. Here, to judge from the commotion round the doors, a lively scene was going on. Outside, a gang of young roughs were hammering at the doors, and shrieking witticisms through the keyhole. Inside, as soon as Murray Edwards and Ellesmere, by dint of good humour and strong shoulders, had succeeded in shoving their way through and shutting the door behind them, they found a still more animated performance in progress. The schoolroom was in almost total darkness. The pupils, some twenty in number, were racing about, like so many shadowy demons, 
pelting each other and their teachers with the dips, which, as the buildings were new and had not yet fitted for gas, had been provided to light them through their three hours. In the middle stood the two philanthropists they were in search of, freely bedaubed with tallow, one employed in boxing a boy's ears, the other in saving a huge ink-bottle whereon some enterprising spirit had just laid hands by way of varying the rebel ammunition. Murray Edwards, who was in his element, went to the rescue at once, helped by Robert. The boy minister, as he looked, had been in fact bow of the Cambridge Eight, and possessed muscles which men twice his size might have envied. In three minutes he put a couple of ringleaders into the street by the scruff of the neck, relit a lamp which had been turned out, and got the rest of the rioters in hand. Ellesmere backed him ably, and in a very short time they had cleared the premises. Then the four looked at each other, and Edwards went off into a shout of laughter. "'My dear Wardlaw, my condolences to your coat! But I don't believe if I were rough myself I could resist dips. Let me introduce a friend, Mr. Ellesmere, and if you will have him a recruit for your work. Seems to me another pair of arms will hardly come amiss to you.' The short, red-haired man addressed shook hands with Ellesmere, scrutinising him from under bushy eyebrows. He was panting and beplastered with tallow, but the inner man was evidently quite unruffled, and Ellesmere liked the shrewd Scotch face and grey eyes. "'It isn't only a pair of arms we want,' he remarked dryly, "'but a bit of science behind them. Mr. Ellesmere, I observe, can use his.' Then he turned to a tall, affected-looking youth with a large nose and long, fair hair, who stood gasping with his hands upon his sides, his eyes full of a moody wrath, fixed on the wreck and disarray of the schoolroom. "'Well, Mackay, have they knocked the wind out of you? My friend and helper, Mr. Ellesmere. Come and sit down, won't you, a minute? They've left us the chairs, I perceive, and there's a spark or two afar. Do you smoke? Will you light up?' The four men sat on chatting some time, and then Wardlaw and Ellesmere walked home together. It had been all arranged. Mackay, a curious, morbid fellow, who had thrown himself into Unitarianism and charity, many out of opposition to an orthodox and bourgeois family, and who had a great idea of his own social powers, was somewhat grudging and ungracious through it all. But Ellesmere's proposals were much too good to be refused. He offered to bring to the undertaking his time, his clergyman's experience, and as much money as might be wanted. Wardlaw listened to him cautiously for an hour, took stock of the whole man physically and morally, and finally said, as he very quietly and deliberately knocked the ashes out of his pipe, "'All right, I'm your man, Mr. Ellesmere. If Mackay agrees, I vote we make you captain of this venture.' "'Nothing of the sort,' said Ellesmere. "'In London I am a novice. I come to learn, not to lead.' Wardlaw shook his head with a little shrewd smile. Mackay faintly endorsed his companion's offer, and the party broke up. That was in January. In two months from that time, by the natural force of things, Ellesmere, in spite of diffidence and his own most sincere wish to avoid a premature leadership, had become the head and heart of the Elgood Street undertaking, which had already assumed much larger proportions. Wardlaw was giving him silent approval and invaluable help, while young Mackay was in the first uncomfortable stages of a hero-worship which promised to be exceedingly good for him. End of Book 6, Chapter 37